On this week's Adam Schefter podcast, prior to this weekend's wild card matchups, we sit down with Jim Mora Jr., the ESPN college football analyst, to discuss what it's like to be a part of the coaching carousel. And then we'll be joined by my friend, my colleague, Chris Mortensen, to discuss some of the coaching maneuvers that are going on around the league right now, as well as a preview of the wild card weekend matchups. And we'll get a different point of view from my colleague, Evan Kaplan, the ESPN NFL researcher. But first, Mort. Morty? Happy New Year again. Happy New Year, Mort. We have one of our busiest times of the year. It's a marriage of the coaching carousel and the NFL playoff games. And both have their own interesting elements that we'll get into here in the course of this conversation. But we'll start off with the coaching carousel and the eight current openings that exist at the NFL level. What has struck you so far this year about the number of openings we have and the candidates that are on teams' radars? Well, the, the numbers aren't surprising. I mean, you know, I think you and I both were hearing at some point, hey, we could get anywhere from 8 to eight to 12, 8 to 10 teams open, which I've always considered an absurd number, but since I don't control the destiny or fate of how uh, these teams or these coaches you know, you just you just report what you can report, and uh, fact is we had two during the season, uh, and in in terms of Cleveland and, and Green Bay, and so you know eight none of it surprised us. I think all these pretty much were you know as speculated or expected, uh, and you know Adam Gase with the Dolphins was the one that we you know okay. What's Stephen Ross going to do there? But, it, you know, he, he made a pretty swift decision once he made it. And do you think that Adam Gase will wind up as a head coach now? You know, I, I, I see it as a coin flip. Uh, you know, yeah, we know he's getting interviewed. But, uh, you know, I think the, the what serves him well is the fact that there's there's this general bend towards having guys who are, you know, come from the offensive side of the football. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Gase comes from that side of the football, and uh, you know he, he wasn't a total flop there with, with the Dolphins, uh, but uh, you know I don't know if that's going to convert itself into a head coaching job this type of time around. It'll be interesting to see what Adam does if he does not get an opportunity to be a head coach. Does he go ahead and take a coordinator job? Or and I think it's sometimes wise for these guys who get fired. Although I think he probably wanted out of there. Take a year, study tape, travel around, visit with coaches, visit facilities, see how teams do it, recharge the battery, and come back refreshed and ready again in 2020. Yeah, I think that's something that some coaches don't take advantage of well enough. Uh, but uh, at the same time, and I'll give you an example, uh, Mike Munchak, who, who's the Steelers offensive line coach, when he was fired by the Tennessee Titans, that was a unique situation where you know, really, they offered him an extension, but they wanted uh, him to, you know, replace his whole staff. And his feeling was, uh, well, you know, I'll make the changes on my staff I deem necessary, but you know, it can't be a condition to signing in an extension. And I, I remember talking to Mike, and you know, kind of like, wouldn't it be nice to take a year off? And he thought about it briefly, and then it was basically. I'm a football coach. I want to coach, and I don't think he regrets it. You know, going to the Steelers and, and, and uh, being their line coach there. But he's back in in the circuit. But I do think there's an advantage to taking that year off, 
Rarely do you get it with the grind of, uh, of coaching and maybe seeing if you can get some fresh ideas and just re-energize and recharge your batteries and get from the, from the stress of it all. More one of the many things I love about you is your extensive knowledge, not only of the NFL, but of the college game. You pay more attention to the college game than I do. You know more about the college game than I do. So I want to ask you your assessment of a guy who is going to get head coaching interviews here, Cliff Kingsbury, the USC offensive coordinator. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been told like for a month now by somebody that he would he would be getting head coaching interviews, and I kind of like I it made me scratch my head saying you know hey he's he's just getting fired by uh, by his alma mater I mean Texas Tech and now he's going to be in back in the mix. Well, it goes back to this uh, formula that we talked about: teams are looking for cutting edge offensive coaches, and I think that Kingsbury has always had an attraction for the NFL first, I think, as, as an offensive coordinator. But uh, sometimes, and of course, we know he's committed to uh, USC, Southern Cal, as, as offensive coordinator. But, you know, it, it could be that in order to get him, you, you have to put him on that head coach uh, carousel. And, you know, he's a guy that, listen, he's he spent some time in New England as a, as a, as a player. Uh so he's got a peek at Belichick. He, we know he's cutting edge. We know he comes from the, uh, you know, the the schools. That, I mean, the air raid philosophies, and, and he knows quarterbacks. He played the position, and teams are looking for that type of guy. And he's got a dynamic personality. So I guess I'm not surprised. I just, uh, I guess if he gets one of these jobs, I will say, okay, I'm mildly surprised. Hmm. You know, it's funny. He was a quarterback. I covered him in training camp yeah, back when he okay. was trying out for the Denver Broncos. Right. W- way back when. That makes me feel old. No, I mean, yeah, when I say – I know I sound like it's, it's it's confusing when I say I'll be surprised if he gets one of these jobs. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not going to be a shock, that type of thing, because we know what teams are looking for. And I think that you can have the debate as to whether that's the right model. Because I do talk to experienced people. Some of them are retired general managers. Some of them are retired head coaches. Some of them are Hall of Fame type executives, and and what have you. And they say the biggest mistake teams make is is uh, you know bending towards one side of the ball or the other. You need leadership. You know, is Bill Belichick a defensive coach? Is he? You know, I don't. We don't look at him that way anymore. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, nevertheless, teams are looking for that uh, secret sauce. A secret sauce that Andy Reid's got going or Sean Payton's got going. And there's some special sauces out there right now. And we had something else that was in the headlines this week, More, The Oklahoma Sooners announced that they signed Lincoln Riley to an extension. Does that, to you, indicate that he will be any less likely to join the NFL whenever he's ready? I think uh, I think that it puts him on ice for this year and maybe for the next couple of years. Lincoln Riley's very young. I, what is he? I mean, is he 34? 35, I think, yeah. 35? Yep. Yeah, he, he's really young. So he can go do this at Oklahoma for another, you know, say two or three years and and, 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 and maybe, I think, take another look at it. Now, Lincoln himself, I thought, was pretty transparent when he talks about, you know, basically college coaches are making pretty good money, mm-hmm. uh, maybe without with, with more stability uh, in, in their jobs. But at some point, the great coaches – 
want to test themselves at the highest level. And there's no question the highest level of the NFL. So I do believe one day Lincoln Riley will take that leap, but I don't think it's coming in the next couple couple of years. So let's do a hypothetical. I guess you and I would be on different sides of the coin here. If the Dallas Cowboys were to go down in flames in the postseason, have a very disappointing performance right. Saturday night against Seattle, you don't think that Mr. Jones might make a run to see if he could tempt Lincoln Riley to leave Oklahoma? I think he might. Oh, I think so. no. I, I think I believe he, he, that Jerry Jones would uh, make a run if he was didn't like what he saw from the from, from the Cowboys. Say even this week against Seattle, Correct. it was a big flop. Uh, you know, and, and 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 there's no question. There's a relationship there uh, between Jerry Jones and Lincoln Riley just because of the the, the circle. I mean, what, Oklahoma and Dallas aren't that far away. You know, they come and play. Uh, so there's familiarity there and. And yeah, I think he would make a run at him, but I think uh, I think just Lincoln is is a guy that uh, I think he would I think he would probably I think he's already given that some thought, Adam. Here's what I here's what I think. Yeah. I think when he when he made some of the public statements he made, signing an extension isn't as big a deal because you know it's it's before the next signing period in, in college recruiting, and Lincoln doesn't know for sure what's coming his way in terms of. Other job opportunities, and he's certainly happy at Oklahoma as he should be. Yep. Uh, but at, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, I think that uh, I think when I heard his words, it's it's what kind of persuades me to think that he's going to pass on this coaching cycle. That's interesting. Well, it wouldn't surprise me, but it also wouldn't surprise me if the Dallas Cowboys had a bad showing. If Mr. Jones made a run at him. Not saying yeah, he gets him. I, I, I agree. I, I agree with you there. There's no question about it. So let's move on to those playoff games. And being that we're talking about the Seahawks and Cowboys here, what stands out to you about that particular matchup, Mort? Uh, you know, we have two teams that are basically, we just got talking about all this offensive fireworks display and the coaching uh, resumes of some of these guys. These teams are. Kind of a well, we know that Pete Carroll went back to his old-fashioned formula. We are yeah. going to be physical, and we're going to run the football. And what are the Dallas? The Dallas Cowboys are an effective team because of Ezekiel Elliott. And even though their offensive line isn't is what it used to be, especially with Travis Frederick missing the entire season, uh, that this team is driven by Ezekiel Elliott. I know Amari Cooper's there. I know Dak Prescott's there. And uh, so it's a very physical game. I think the Cowboys' defense has been better than people think. Uh, and then, you know, people will say, well, the, the edge may go to the Seahawks because of Russell Wilson. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, I'm, this one's got me – listen, all these games have, have uh, a certain mystique to them. But uh, to me, it's going to be Ezekiel Elliott. Can the Seahawks control him? And I'm not so sure they can, by the way. And, you know, listen, the Seahawks – are 3-0 and in the wildcard playoffs under Russell Wilson. Two of those wins have come on the road. The last time I think these two teams met in the playoffs, you remember, is 2006. I think yeah. that might have been Bill Parcells' last game. Seattle won 21-20. That was the game when Tony Romo boxed the snap on a late field goal. That football was a little bit funny, Adam. It was awfully shiny. Shiny and slick. I'm not sure it was a K-ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, there's a lot of funny things. And the Cowboys DB coach, Chris Richard, was the Seahawks defensive coordinator the past three seasons. Yes. And the Cowboys are tough to beat at home, 7-1. and one. I mean, there's a lot of things here that I think karma-wise are in Dallas's favor. But Seattle's been much better this year than people thought. John Schneider's done a great job with that team. 
Yeah, no, uh, and we know John Schneider and Pete Carroll to me are the, the probably as good a GM coach combo as there is in the league. Uh, certainly, way up there. Uh, I think the Cowboys, what they've done, I think that has been unique, is they finally have had a home field advantage ever since Jerry Jerry built his beautiful new stadium. Uh, it hasn't been a big home field advantage. It's almost like a tourist attraction, mm-hmm. but this year it became a, a, a home field advantage. And I think primarily because uh, and they got back to some basics, which is you know running the ball and you know playing very good defense with Chris Richard. And, and you got to love the way Rod Marinelli kind of you know took the lead and saying you know hey let's this is working well with Chris Richard calling the plays. I'll coach my guys and I'll be like the the assistant defensive coordinator. I like the way that's worked. The other game Saturday, Colts Texans on ESPN, ABC. Is it on ESPN or ABC or both? Both, I think, actually. More. Yeah, it's on both, I think. Yeah, both because we get the one playoff game. We want to put it on both our networks. That'll start at about I think four thirty Eastern, maybe four thirty-five. Andrew Luck back in Houston. The Colts are five and two in Houston since drafting Andrew Luck in two thousand twelve. Luck has started five of those seven games. What stands out to you about this matchup? Well, both teams they split the series this year in the AFC South, and both 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 games the teams won on the road. In other words, the the, the home team lost. So here the Texans are the home team. Uh, you know, the one thing about the Colts, their defense has been very much better than people thought, but their secondary still has a lot of holes. So here it comes down to what? To me, it's down to pass protection. Deshaun Watson, we know, is the most sacked quarterback in the NFL, but you know, I see a guy in Deshaun Watson who is improving his craft in terms of throwing the football, setting his feet, those type of things. And so I'm going to give a slight edge to the Texans in this one, uh, but not feeling comfortable. I actually don't feel comfortable about any picks that I make right now. Any of these games. Any of these games, yeah. They're, I mean, that, they they're that close. They, they really are that close to me. Yeah, that you know, it's – you bring up the Colts and the Texans, and I know we've heard a lot of conversation this year about Baker Mayfield in Cleveland and Saquon Barkley in New York. I, I really believe that Quentin Nelson is as worthy of the Offensive Rookie of the Year as either of those two players. He won't win it, but he has helped transform that offensive line, which was one of the worst in football, and made it one of the best in football, protected Andrew Luck, got this team back to the playoffs. Quentin Nelson has been a huge pickup by Chris Ballard, the Colts general manager. Oh, I think he, he he was a great pickup, and like when he you know when he fell to them at number six, and of course, you know uh, Bradley Chubb going to the Denver at number five made that allowed that to happen. Uh, you know, going into the draft, you know, I had, I had some guys I really trust in this league, been around a long time. who just felt there like were two or three just you know guys who actually would have a chance to you know be Hall of Famers if they stayed healthy and played up to their potential and, and their character matched it. And Quentin Nelson was one of those guys, and he's played up to that. And their offensive line is solidified. And here's the other thing is they got a center in Ryan Kelly who is outstanding, who's been hurt with a neck injury, and he's he's going to be available this weekend. So their coach's offensive line, because of Quentin Nelson, because of Ryan Kelly, I think Anthony Costanzo is playing his best football at left tackle. Uh, the right side of the line is much better than people thought. And so that against, you know, uh, the, the Texans defensive line of J.J. Watt and Javian Clowney and all the, other, all the rest, that's, that's an intriguing matchup. And Quentin Nelson, it's really interesting that we would be talking about a guard who absolutely is worthy of consideration for the offensive rookie of the year, though, you know, we believe it'll go to Baker Mayfield or Saquon Barkley. And that's okay, too, because those guys were terrific this year.
And did I hear you say that Ryan Kelly is going to play this weekend? Uh, that's my uh, understanding. You know, it's kind of like a, the, the same old thing that happened with Ryan Matthews one year, if you remember. <laughs> that's an inside joke between me and Adam. Oh, that's a great story that we'll tell another time. All right, speaking of the Chargers, Mort, Ryan Matthews, we had the Chargers-Ravens in the first game Sunday. First playoff meeting between the Chargers and Ravens. Ravens won in L.A. in Week 16, beating them 22-10 and essentially preventing the Chargers from getting the number one seed, which would have been awesome if the Playoff games were played out in L.A. in front of a stadium that fills up more from visiting fans than home fans. What stands out to you about this matchup? Well, I think the fact that they're playing each other uh, within a very t- a small time frame. I think that, you know, the Ravens dominated that game, and they dominated the Chargers' offensive line. And, and you can sit there and say that was just uh, – and, and Wink Martindale, who I think has done as good a job as any assistant coach in this league, uh, the defense coordinator of the Ravens. I thought he just did a great job of dialing things up and making Philip Rivers uh, not just uncomfortable, but almost impossible at times to 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 to, to play. But I but I, but I do think the Chargers. You know, it's a little bit of an advantage for them. Uh, I think Kevin had played this game uh, already. It's weird that they would have a, a be twelve and four and going on the road. But you know what? This team's not afraid of being on the road, and it is one reason why I voted for Anthony Lynn as for Coach of the Year. Uh, you know they're a wild card team, but to win twelve games to to play the way they play on the road, uh, I think that they're going to be a handful for the Ravens. You know, and I, I I'm anxious to find out what did the Browns do to that Ravens defense that allowed allowed them to be uh, the Browns to be so effective throwing the football. You know, it, 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 there's something there, and maybe it's, it's as simple as the offensive line stood up and played well, but. Uh, I, I think the Chargers are going to go in there and and, uh, and play the Ravens better than they did uh, just a few weeks ago. And I would say that the winner of this game could be the team that we all sit there and say, are they Super Bowl worthy? Yeah, and you know, I, we, uh, yeah, I think that. And we've talked before about the advantage that the Chargers have of going on the road. How about this, Mort? The Chargers were 7-1 and one on the road this season, which tied the Saints for the best road record in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, and we've talked about that. I mean, I think this team kind of like embraces playing on the road because, hey, you can play in front of twenty-five or 30,000 fans at your own, your home stadium where it really doesn't feel like a home game. Or you can go out and, you know, have that us-against-the-world mentality where it's, you're energized by the, the, the crowd and, and you're always practicing uh, with the silent count because you don't know if you're going to get that at home or, or not. So I think that they... Enjoy being out there. And then we all know they're getting Hunter Henry back. I'll be anxious to see what kind of role he can play at tight end after uh, having a torn ACL back in May. But uh, to me, it's about their offensive line and, and seeing if they've solved some of the uh, blitz packages that Wink Martindale threw at them. And, you know, uh, healthy running backs, you know, and, and, and going at it through there. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this matchup. I really am. And I would say I am told that Hunter Henry is expected to play. Right. So I, I expect to see him out there. We'll see whether he can be a factor in this game on Sunday. All right, the last playoff match for the weekend is the Eagles and the Bears. The Bears have been one of the best stories of the entire season. They'll play their first playoff game since the 2010 NFC Championship game. was also at home. The only two players in the Bears' active roster who were even in the NFL at the last time they were in the playoffs were Chase Daniels and Sherrick McManus. So here's That's my amazing. question there, Moore. We know Nick Foles. Nine and two as a starter over the last two seasons, including the playoffs. The best win percentage in the NFL amongst quarterbacks with 10 starts. We know how good Carson Wentz is. 
Could there be anything that happens? What would happen if Nick Foles took the Eagles on another extended postseason run despite the admiration for Carson Wentz? And we both think that Philadelphia never would do anything to move on from Carson Wentz to they'll do everything they can to sign him long term. I'm just wondering, Ella, what if he leads him to another Super Bowl? Well, I mean, I think that would intensify the discussion, but I don't think it changes anything. And and the other thing is, like, you know, Carson Wentz, if he doesn't get hurt last year, uh, you know, the Eagles might have beaten the Patriots by three touchdowns with Carson Wentz. You know, so, you know, you can't – it's hard to play that game. And I would say that Carson Wentz is just an immense talent. Yeah. And I think in some ways Nick Foles kind of, uh, kind of makes – Doug Peterson dialed back some things in terms of how they approach the game. And I think in, in some ways, Doug Peterson himself as a play caller, you know, evolves himself in, in, in a very positive way. And so, uh, yeah, if, he, if they should win the Super Bowl, and I think they can win this game against the Bears. I, wow. mean, I, 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 I do. I mean, you know, listen, Lane Johnson, I saw Lane Johnson uh, pretty much dominate J.J. Watt. Uh, when they played uh, recently. Yep. And uh, this is the right tackle of the Eagles. So Khalil Mack, I would imagine we get moved around some. We'll see how he does. They're different players. J.J. is and, and, and Khalil Mack are different players. But uh, I would say that, uh, you know, I, Nick Foles is like a point guard in basketball. That's what has been said, and that's a good thing. But, uh, you know, and – but to think that Carson Wentz wouldn't have won the Super Bowl last year, yeah. I think is, is is you know, I think that's I would I would say it's almost laughable. I think they would have won the Super Bowl in a more dominating fashion. It's just an interesting conversation. Again, I it don't goes, know that it, the, it happened. If they won the Super Bowl this year, we know what's going. Heck, it's already happening. <laughs> and I'm I never just, thought I'm, we'd I'm have just, that just, conversation because Carson yeah. Wentz is that good. Yeah, no, he is, and he's 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 so physically gifted. Now, one thing that Carson has to do is show that he can he can stay healthy. I mean, that it's part of the equation. But you know, Nick Foles has been to different places, and he, listen, he's captured something very special there, and uh, and clearly he distributes the ball. I think a little bit better than Wentz does, and sometimes, by the way. I think Carson, because he's so physically talented, and I see this in young guys who are especially gifted, is they don't give up on plays quite as quickly, and they don't necessarily, listen, they're always going to try and make the great play, or or usually going to try and make the great play, and and, and sometimes there's some growth in that, but Carson's just immensely talented and mentally is as sharp as he is in the league. And more two of the last three defending Super Bowl champions to reach the playoffs got back to the Super Bowl. The 2014 Seahawks did it. The 2017 Patriots did it. And so the Eagles will try to become the third of the four last defending Super Bowl champions to reach the playoffs to get back to the Super Bowl the next year. Be interesting. Yeah, and I, I think they could upset the Bears this week, but I don't see them getting back to the Super Bowl. That makes two of us, but listen, they were hard-pressed to do it last year, and they did it. They're a talented team, so they'll have their shot this weekend. And more, we'll look forward to seeing you on Saturday in studio. We have a pregame show on at noon on ESPN, then countdown, Saturday countdown, which is Sunday countdown on Saturday at 3 o'clock, <laughs> leading up to the wild card game, and then, of course, Sunday countdown again on Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for the time today, my friend. Happy New Year, and look forward to seeing you on Saturday. All right, Adam. Same to you, bud. Thanks, Morty. Cap hit. All right, so we got my friend Chris Mortensen's take on these playoff games and the coaching carousel, and now we'll take a more analytical view on this wild card weekend 
and bring in my colleague, my friend, Evan Kaplan, to go over some of the numbers. Evan, thanks for joining us. Happy New Year. And we've got, really, I think, a new storyline for these playoffs, and that involves the quarterbacks here. What's your take there? We really do, Adam, and Happy New Year to you as well. Great to be back with you. And and you look at the 2018 playoffs, and there are six starting quarterbacks, exactly half of the playoff field, who are 25 or younger. Dak Prescott, Jared Goff, Mitchell Trubisky, Watson, Mahomes, and Lamar Jackson. That's the most quarterbacks 25 or younger in a single postseason in NFL history. We, we've always, we're always looking forward to that next new wave. It feels like these are the guys who we will be talking about in the playoffs for the next decade, doesn't it? I mean, you've got all these impressive young players. Four of those six will be making their first playoff start. And you look at Lamar Jackson, he'll be the youngest quarterback to ever start a playoff game in NFL history. We get that from our friends at Elias. And, and, and it's an interesting storyline as you look at the playoffs as a whole yeah. with how young some of these quarterbacks are. Well, we get it at a time where basically we are near the end of the career. For Ben Roethlisberger, who didn't make the postseason, Eli Manning, who didn't make the postseason, and Philip Rivers, who is in this postseason, trying to reach his first Super Bowl ever, uh, having to go on the road to do that. Yep. But at a time where that great quarterback class is, is on the way out, whether it's a year or two, three, we now get this next crop of quarterbacks. Right, and and of those six quarterbacks, you've got three of them uh, from that 2017 draft class in Trubisky, and Watson, and then Mahomes, and we could, and look, in 15 years, we could be talking about the 2017 top of the draft like we do the 2004 draft. Yeah, and really the first matchup of the weekend, which is on ESPN Saturday, 4.30, is a matchup of, to me, the contenders for comeback player of the year, Andrew Luck and Deshaun Watson. Absolutely. It's incredible what both of them have done this year. You look at Luck, who missed all of 2017, and he came back to have the most productive season in NFL history by any quarterback who didn't play in the previous year, throwing 39 touchdowns. That surpassed Peyton Manning in 2012 after he missed the entire 2011 season. And Deshaun Watson becoming only the third player in NFL history to throw for 4,000 yards and rush for 500 yards. You look at the dual threat he presents Really an intriguing divisional game that we will see on Wild Card Weekend to start things off. And you got J.J. Watt coming back to play all six games for the first time since 2015. He led the AFC in sacks. So you can make an argument that the three players most deserving of the Comeback Player of the Year, Andrew Luck, Deshaun Watson, J.J. Watt, all playing in the first Wild Card matchup of this weekend. I, I would agree with that. Uh, I think they, they've all come back to kind of where they were before the injury. And it sets up for an interesting game, but two close games between these teams during the regular season, each kind of winning on uh, on the, the, the opposing home field, both winning on the road. So we'll see what happens Saturday in Houston. Now, what's usually happened in Houston is that T.Y. Hilton, the Indianapolis Colts wide receiver, has shined. What is going on with his numbers there in Houston? It's unbelievable. He, he talked about it earlier this week, and he's averaging 133 receiving yards per game in wow. seven games in Houston. Seven? Uh, in seven, seven ga- Over seven games, he's averaging 133 per game. Elias tells us that's the most by any player at a road, at, at a single road opponent in NFL history among players with five games. And, and the most interesting way I think to look at it, you look at, he's had four games with 175 yards in the regular season in his career. 
three of those games have been in Houston. Wow. So wow. It, it's incredible the numbers he puts up there. We'll see if that continues. Obviously, a big task for the Texans' defense to try and slow him down. And something tells me that DeAndre Hopkins is probably aware of some of those numbers and will be up to the challenge against a Colts secondary that you wonder if it has a cornerback as good as the Colts' defense has been that can keep up with Hopkins and shut him down, being that he really is the primary threat on the Houston offense. Absolutely, and and with the, the second most receiving yards in the league this year for Hopkins and the two guys who probably still aren't talked about as much as they should be in, in Hopkins and Hilton, we'll, we'll see them uh, to kick off the weekend on Saturday. Now, we brought up earlier in this conversation, Evan, the fact that Phillip Rivers is trying to get back to the Super Bowl for the first time. Where do we put into historical context his production without having played in a Super Bowl? You can make it really simple out of it. He is he is the most productive quarterback in NFL history that has never played in a Super Bowl. He has the most touchdown passes, the most passing yards for any quarterback without a Super Bowl appearance. Huh. 37 years old in his 15th year. Look, we, we know that they'll have to do it by going on the road this year, but that's been a spot where they've been the most comfortable this year. They're they're seven and one yep. on the in in road games, and if you extend the game in London, they're eight and one away from home. So, uh, been a better team on the road this year. We'll see what happens, but you'd have to think this is one of Rivers' probably last chances to get to a Super Bowl. And more and I talked about why they're better on the road, but I will also say this to you that Philip Rivers we had on this podcast in the spring, I believe, and. He showed no signs of this being close to the end. Now, he's going to have his ninth child, and they need him more than football needs him. Right. But he sounded like he wanted to play a few more years at the very least. Now, we don't know that he's going to be able to perform at that level, and just because he wants to play for a few years doesn't mean he actually does. And that was said seven, eight months ago you know, before the season begins, and who knows how a player's thinking changes, particularly when his Ninth child is expected, but we may get a couple more Philip Rivers seasons. Here. Yeah, and this wasn't in this Chargers season, as we all know, was it was it like the team played in spite of Rivers? He was the one of the major reasons for their success in the top ten in pretty much every key passing category. Um, so he has shown no signs of slowing down. Now the other matchup on Sunday involves the monsters of the midway, the Chicago Bears. Their defense, it's been spectacular this year. Their defensive coordinator, Vic Fangio, has spearheaded a unit that has garnered him attention for coaching jobs around the league and has gotten the attention of everybody. How good are the Bears? The the defense, historically good in terms of leading the NFL in scoring defense, allowing the fewest points per game and takeaways. They were the outright leader in both of those. And, and one of my colleagues, Brian Beasley, came up with an amazing note that the Bears only the fourth team to lead the NFL outright in both of those categories, scoring defense and takeaways, since the 1970 merger. The previous three all won the Super Bowl. The 1985 Bears, 2000 Ravens, and 2013 Seahawks. They'll have to win a couple, at least one game on the road. We'll see what happens. But the defense carrying that team, um, and, and we'll see it's four Pro Bowlers on defense to add to that. No, that's the most for any defensive unit in the NFL uh, so the defense carries that team, but as we've seen, Mitchell Trubisky and the offense much better at home where they'll start their playoff run on Sunday. It's been a great run for the Chicago Bears. Should be a great matchup Sunday in the second game. And Evan, I want to wish you, your family, a happy new year. Appreciate all the insight you've brought to us this year. I'm sure we'll do this again next week in preparation for the divisional playoffs. And let's look forward to a great wildcard weekend.
Thanks a lot, Adam. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Evan. Jim? Adam, how you doing, pal? How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So, Jim, we are in a busy time of the year. The coaching carousel spinning. We're coming off a Monday in which six more head coaches have lost their job. You've been through a process like that. At the risk of sounding insensitive, what is it like to be fired as a head coach? How does it happen? Well, I mean, the process is pretty simple. Typically, you know, you meet with the owner and the, the general manager, and they sit you down, and they thank you for the work that you've done, and they wish you the best, but they say that they've decided to make a change. And uh, you go tell your staff, and you pack up your office, and you, <laughs> you head out of the building. Uh, but there's a lot that comes with it uh, beyond that. And um, it's incredibly emotional. Um, it's, an, it's an emotional time uh, personally. It's an emotional time for your family. If you have children, trying to explain to them what has happened and what is about to transpire in terms of changes in their lives. Um, it's emotional in that uh, I think you feel a sense that maybe you've let down members of your staff and their families. Um, you know, for me, myself, it was, uh, I always felt the responsibility, not only to my staff members, but to their wives and children as well. And so, you know, when you get fired and you, you think that, you know, potentially up to, you know, 30 or 40 young children are going to have to uproot with their families and move to new schools and, and make new friends, uh, move into new houses. Um, it, it can be a little bit overwhelming and that is just the reality of the situation. I think it's, you know, for people outside of, of the business, um, okay, this guy's fired, who's next? But it's so much deeper than that for those that are inside the building that are now facing significant life changes. And for those who don't know, you were a head coach in Atlanta from 2004 to 2008. Uh, you were a head coach in Seattle, head coaching UCLA. No, we don't count the Seattle. The Seattle one, we're not counting that one. No, <laughs> that that's a mulligan? <laughs> What's that? That's a mulligan? Well, it was an interesting situation. You know, I was there on the staff, and uh, Mike Holmgren uh, stepped away, and I took over. And uh, and then our general manager was let go halfway through the year, and you know the writing was on the wall. So, uh, you know, we improved our winning record, our, our, our record over uh, what we'd done the previous year with Coach Holmgren, who's one of the great ones. Uh, but you know, they were just looking to make wholesale changes. So I I, I call that like an internship. I'm, I'm being facetious, obviously, but, uh, no, <laughs> but okay. So hold on. LA. So so again, if my math is accurate, Jim, twenty-seven and twenty-three in Atlanta with an yep. NFC Championship game, forty-six yep. and thirty at UCLA, seventy-three yep. and fifty-three overall, right? Correct. Would you ever want to coach again? Yeah, I'd love to have an opportunity to coach again, and. Uh, I, I'm sometimes confused as to why, you know, there aren't opportunities presenting themselves um, at either level, at the college level, level or the NFL level. I mean, I've proven that, you know, I can be successful. Um, you know, I've turned around two programs. I went to Atlanta, uh, and they were 5-11, and 11, and we went 11-5, and five, went to the NFC Championship game, as you mentioned, and then I came to UCLA and certainly changed the culture, not, not individually, certainly with the help of many, many uh, people and coaches and players and, and administrators. But, uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a quirky business. It's interesting. Um, you know, I've, it's all I've done my entire life. My dad was incredibly successful. So I would certainly like to coach again. I'd love to get the right opportunity. And, you know, I'd be honest with you, it's frustrating 
to not get that opportunity um, given the success that I've had. And you just mentioned my record. And I don't think people really understand that or, or know that I have had success. So I appreciate you bringing it up. Well, it's my pleasure, Jim. And I'm surprised that nobody has called you and nobody's brought you in and that you, you could be an asset to somebody at this point. At 57 years old, you could still do this, right? I'm a youngster. You know, I, uh, and listen, I want to say this. I enjoy what I'm doing with ESPN. I'm blessed to be, uh, you know, at, at the same company as you and, and around some great, great people and have really enjoyed my time there. But I think, you know, keeping my heart, I'm a, I'm a football coach, you know, from a football family. And I, I'd love to get another opportunity to, to lead a team and lead men. And, you know, you say 57 and to some that may seem old, but I'm a young 57. I'm still out in the ocean. You know, when I'm in L.A. and I'm out on the ski hill when I'm up in Sun Valley. So, uh, you know, I, I don't feel like – I feel like I'm 37, Adam. Third, that's a good thing, Jim, right? Yep. Would you like to yep. coach in the NFL or college, given your choice? I'll tell you what, I really enjoyed both. Um, I spent most of my career in the NFL. I, I, was with, um, I was with the Chargers, with the Saints. I was with the uh, 49ers, uh, the Seahawks, and obviously the Falcons. And then in college, just with with UCLA, and I, and I love them both. You know, I, I, there's certain things about both levels that appeal to me. Um, certainly, in the NFL, you're operating on the largest stage with the greatest athletes, and it's extremely competitive. And um, it's it's just uh, competing against the best of the best is is awesome on an everyday day to day basis. But college football is fantastic as well because you are mentoring young men and you're preparing them for the next steps in their lives, whether that is, you know, in football or in another career. So I just, I just like the competitive environment. I love the strategy and tactics. I love the emotion and the adrenaline rush of game day. I love, you know, when you win a game and you have to refocus for the next game. Uh, I don't love losing a game, but you know, I, I embrace the challenge of, fighting back from a loss and trying to get your team back on track with, you know, the right mindset. So it's all just, to me, a lifestyle, and I, I'm, I do miss it greatly. Um, you're, you learn from your dad. I would think that you learn from Steve Mariucci. Who would you say is your greatest coaching influence, and what did you learn from that person, Jim? I, I think there's several. You know, I was so fortunate. Obviously, my dad had tremendous success, and you know, it didn't manifest itself in, in playoff wins, which is unfortunate. But you know, what he did in Atlanta—I'm sorry, what he did in New Orleans and what he did in uh, in Indianapolis—were were pretty incredible. Um, and then I was around Bill Walsh, and I'll be forever grateful for having had the time that I had with Bill Walsh. And um, you know, I would meet with Bill on an almost daily basis in San Francisco. I'd have him come into my meetings and, and sit and listen to my messages and how could I do a better job of, of presenting material or uh, organizing the time that I had in meetings. Um, I would talk to him about draft strategy. Uh, you know, he was notorious for um, making a move before thought, people thought he should make it, and yet it would end up being a great move, such as moving on from Joe Montana or moving on from Ronnie Lott or guys like that. And, you know, he he had just a unique strategy in the draft. He was a wheeler and dealer, and I just learned great lessons from him. And uh, I'll be forever fortunate for that. I also was lucky to be with Steve Mariucci, and then Mike Holmgren had a tremendous influence on me. And, and then, you know, guys I was around growing up, you know, I was fortunate I was around Dick Vermeil and, you know, guys like that and Terry Donahue and, 
you know, the late Jack Patera and, and just many Don James. I mean, many, many great ones. So I've been very fortunate to, to, to be able to learn and watch and grow amongst some of the best ever. What's the biggest lesson that you say you would take from your dad? Um, be consistent, be demanding and yet fair. Um, start hard. You know, my dad always say, he, he always told me a couple things on a consistent basis. Um, he, he always told me, never stop learning. Never, ever stop learning. You know, try to find ways to get better every day. He always told me, treat everybody in the building as if they're the most important person in the building. You know, don't ever walk by, you know, uh, an administrative assistant and, you know, not say hi. Treat everybody as if they really matter because they all do. And they, they all have different levels of responsibility, but everybody is important to the success or the failures of the organization. And he also used to tell me, uh, start hard. You know, start tough with your players demanding and, and disciplined and, and you can't start soft and then get hard. You can't, you can't be lax about things and then drop the hammer, expect them to, rea- to react, but you can start with a certain standard. And if it's not necessarily right, you can, you can soften a little bit and, and they may react, but they're typically not going to react when you start soft and then try to get demanding on them. And uh, he talked about consistency with me all the time, you know, be consistent if you if you set a rule and and you know enforce a rule, and if you're not going to enforce a rule, then don't have a rule. And uh, he he was great. You know, he talked about every day whether you win or you lose. You know, you come back with the same enthusiasm that you had the day before, and uh, never cheat the team that's paying you. And I never did. I don't think I ever went to work one day and didn't give all that I had. So I was fortunate to be around, in my opinion, a great man and a great coach, and my dad. And I still use him as a mentor every day. Mm-hmm. I worked with him in NFL Network. I love working with him. He was endlessly entertaining <laughs> yep. and quite opinionated and quite a movie buff too, Jim. My dad watches, he goes to see every movie that comes out. I mean, he loves the movies. His dad was a, was an editor at Fox and uh, was a movie editor, so he did a lot of that. So my dad was always around the business. He's an L.A. guy, so but he just he's a movie buff. And he has always been true to himself. You know, you're not going to get, much phoniness out of my dad, whether it's on television or in real life or as a football coach. He just uh, he tells it like he sees it. And uh, I'll say this, he's he's changed a little bit, you know, in the last 10 years. He's, he's loosened up a little bit, <laughs> you know. The competitiveness now comes out in his golf because he doesn't have football, but he's just, uh, you know, he's got a lot of integrity. He's a good man. Before I let you go, Jim, you're a college football analyst for ESPN, and I don't want you to inflate the competition when we're trying to get you a head coaching job here again. But of these names that have been linked to potential NFL openings, like Cliff Kingsbury, like Lincoln Riley, like Matt Campbell, who's a guy that impresses you that you think would be a good NFL head coach from the college ranks? That's a great question because – if you have not coached at the NFL level, you just really don't understand what it is truly like. It is, it's a different animal. The NFL is the level of competition, the type of athlete, a professional mindset, as opposed to a college mindset. Um, you know, you're dealing with men, not young men that are becoming men. And it takes a certain personality. Uh, the one thing that I, I think that college coaches maybe do understand a little bit better than, than older coaches in the NFL is the mindset of the contemporary athlete. But of these guys that are being, that, that are being mentioned, 
you know, I, I don't know him real well. I, I think sometimes it's interesting that that uh, some of these fads and guys that are that are you know offensive gurus and have created some certain kind of offense that has taken college football by storm. Everyone think that, thinks that's going to transpire to success at the next level, and I don't know that it always does. But mm. I know this: the three guys you mentioned are all outstanding uh, college football coaches, and I can't say whether or not you know they they would uh, translate into great NFL coaches or not. I know that they're all guys that uh, have had success with their system, and uh, whether or not that system would work in the NFL or their personalities would work in the NFL, you know, that's a crapshoot. That's one of the reasons I think. Adam, there's, you know, eight to ten jobs open every single year. You know, it's just a, it's a league of fluidity. It never stops. The coaching carousel nope. continues to spin, and maybe Jim Moore with a seventy-three and fifty-three record can get back on there one day and get another crack. I'd love it, Adam. I'd love it. Jim, thanks for the time. Happy New Year to you and your family, and we'll look forward to seeing you around the halls of Bristol, Connecticut. Yes, sir. And thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks, Jim. And so a special thanks to my friend and colleague, Jim Moore Jr., the ESPN college football analyst who does a great job for us and would be a great coach if he were to return to the sideline. And to Evan Kaplan, who provided us some informative, insightful information about this weekend's wildcard matchups. And, of course, my friend, my colleague, my professional partner, Chris Mortensen, who I love dearly. And thank you, the listener, for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. We'll be back in this space again next week to preview the divisional playoff round and talk about the latest on the coaching carousel. Thanks for listening this week, everybody.